welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Matt Rogan. Matt is chairman and co-founder of Two Circles, the award-winning sports marketing agency that uses data to help sports organizations grow relationships with their audience and partners to drive commercial growth. Since founding the business in 2011, Two Circles has grown rapidly to a team of 150 people across the UK, North America and Europe. Following the sale of the majority stake in the business to WPP in 2015, Matt took up the role as chairman, supporting and challenging the Two Circles management team to deliver bigger and better results across all areas of the business. In addition to his role at Two Circles, Matt is a published author and has been featured in the likes of the Harvard Business Review and the Journal of Sports Management. We go into detail on a whole range of topics in this interview, including what led Matt and his co-founders to start Two Circles and the structures they put in place to set it up for success, leading a millennial team and the lessons for anyone looking to grow a young dynamic organization, the importance of process and systems in building a business, even at the startup phase, and how doing so helped Matt and the team grow rapidly, avoiding many of the issues that new businesses face. I really enjoyed this conversation with Matt and took so much away from what he had to say. If you're looking for clear, practical advice on how to grow your own consulting business or practice area, then you're going to love this interview. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matt Rogan. Hi Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome to our offices on this lovely, sunny London summer afternoon. It's great to be here. And like I said to you before we started, I'm very glad you emailed me before I arrived. I was in town a couple of weeks ago for another meeting wearing, foolishly wore a jacket, shirt, and I think it was the Monday when it was about 35 degrees. So thank you for telling me to wear t-shirts and shorts. No, it's uh, fine. We like to relax when we can relax. <laughs> Much more comfortable. Uh, to, to kick us off, it'd be great for those who maybe don't know you as well, just to get an overview of your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I was more arts-led, I think, than, than science-led originally. So at school, A-level French, English, German. I studied languages at Cambridge and leaving Cambridge was a little bit critical of my CV in the sense that I didn't really have any hard business experience to speak of. I'd done one internship during my time at university, which was slightly unfortunately being the full guy on the insolvency of a bridal wear manufacturer, being the guy who had to welcome the irate husbands at the door when we couldn't release their wedding dresses. So I kind of figured I wanted to broaden out my experience from being a five foot eight henchman. <laughs> so on that basis, I started off a broader career in strategy consultancy. I worked for a company called Cowchess Group, who was subsequently subsumed into CSC which was a fairly generalist boutique strategy consultancy set up by, by two Bain, two McKinsey partners. Tried to make a name for myself as understanding the sports and media entertainment landscape, which was just beginning to shift. This was in the era that Sky Sports was, was beginning to become a thing and a bit of a presence beyond sort of linear broadcast TV. And effectively made my own luck a bit, picked up a couple of sports projects mm-hmm. in, in the time in that generalist practice as the the most junior analysts on the project uh, and made the call that rather than do my MBA, I kind of cashed in that experience, jumped to the NBA, US Basketball League, marketing various bits of the NBA in, in Europe. From there to MTV, by that time I'd learned a bit more about business and, and was running the sponsorship practice, so brands partnering with MTV to work across Europe. 
my best man at the time said when I got married said I was the smallest man ever to work at the NBA and the least musically talented ever to work at, at MTV he was pretty right I, and that was the point really where I, I kind of figured I might want to go up my own at some mm. point you know I sort of ha- had an entrepreneurial itch but managed to satisfy that for seven years by taking a role at a, at a leadership development business called Lane 4 uh, run by a cracking guy an Olympic swimmer a guy called Adrian Morehouse effectively an organizational development leadership development business and I had the chance there to to learn not just how to provide services in a consulting environment but also how to run a business like that effectively paid a COO type role for Adrian and that was the point where the itch got too itchy and uh, it was that point that I, that I left to to set up or co-found two circles so I guess the role I play now is it's sort of beautifully post-rationalized as all good careers tend to be it was a blend of being a service provider and a strategy consultancy for rights holders it's the NBA and MTV chunk and my role tends to be more the, the leadership and management of that business as a, as a fairly executive chair role to really a blend of career experience to date of course I didn't have a clue that was where I was going at the beginning of the jigsaw puzzle but that's where it's ended up on the basketball point the first question I had was actually I, I know your graduates when you get them in for their uh, assessment I think I saw they all end up playing a basketball game Are you, this is true do you, this do you is partake true. I don't actually. What did I do this year? This year I did a sort of potted two circles take on the way the industry is changing and evolving. I didn't get to do the interesting stuff, which was play sport with them. But in all seriousness, we we do things like that because you know we we were lucky. I think we had we run the only sports specific agency graduate scheme in the country, mm. and, and because it's a, it's a fairly enticing industry for people to to consider joining. We've horrendously oversubscribed. This was year two, and I think we've got about 600 applications this year. And it's a lot harder to find graduates with the emotional intelligence, the empathy, and the collegiate way of working to work in our business than it is to find them with the technical skill. Mm. And so things, whilst it's fun and a bit of an icebreaker and things, things like the basketball enable us to see not just what people would do in their time with us, but how they would do it. And mm. it's the how they would do it that really makes the difference between uh, the candidates we pick and the candidates we don't. And we like tall ones as well. But. I think let's keep on the graduate side and the sports side in particular, because you know the point you made, if I, if I reflect back to when I was at university, you know, you're spot on. The, the idea of being able to work in sport was a very sexy thing. But I think a lot of people really, that was just an extension of, I like playing sport, therefore I want to work in sport. And it's something as a as a sports fan looking who has very little knowledge of the inner work. You know, my perception though is that it's it's very different. Is that a challenge you find graduates turning you know, when you're getting the applications through? Is that a challenge people have? And what is it that sets those best graduates that you then hire apart from those? Yeah, there's absolutely a a blind fascination and interest in the business of sport. Mm. Uh, it's fueled by the media, to be honest. If you look on the on the back pages, increasingly in the sports space, there's many stories about the business side and transfers and managers staying or going things as actually as there is the action and what happens on the pitch. Mm. Ticket prices, this, attendance is that. And we're really straightforward, really, I think, in that, in that we look for four things in joining a, an organization like Two Circles. So we look for academics and we don't look for academics because we're, we're academic snobs at all. We look for academics because we think they're a great predictor of being able to pick up new things quickly. Now, if somebody doesn't have great academics, but has been done something else with their kind of formative years, 
that offsets the academics and they've put themselves in different environments and learned new things and done so in an interesting way, then we're perfectly happy to accept that that somebody's good at grasping new things in other ways. But we mm. do unashamedly look for academics. We look for analytics and you don't have to have done a sciences degree to be analytical. You just need to be able to look at a sea of numbers and intuitively go, well, those two look quite interesting. They look a bit different. I wonder why they're different. That's what we're looking for. We look for emotional intelligence, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, mm. basketball example. And in terms of sports, the way we would describe the sports piece is we look for an intuitive understanding of the business of sport and interest in the business of sport. And that's different to liking sport. So an intuitive, and in fact, sometimes it runs contrary. So for example, you're exhausted. It's Monday night. You live in England. You get home. You're lucky enough to have paid TV. You switch the TV on for a, for a Premier League match, uh, you do one of two things. Either you look at 11 coloured dots on and 11 other coloured dots, run around a bit of green and just let your mind relax and vaguely follow the score. Or you can't help yourself but say, why is that advertising hoarding in Chinese? And why is that stand a little bit empty? And I wonder what the deal is with the company that are telling us whether the, the balls cross the line or not that supply those feeds into the broadcaster. And we're interested in the people that can't help but ask themselves those questions. doesn't mean they know the answers, but they just have that intuitive interest in the what's going on behind the scenes. And I know you're big in data, and I know we, we talked a lot about, we'll come on to some of the things in this room that sort of drive from that. Do you find, to your point, is, there a, is it always a strong correlation between the people who enjoy or are avid sports fans, you know, might be a big Manchester United fan, and the people who find that interesting, or is there a... Are there any correlations in in that respect? Is it maybe the other way that you actually find people are less interested or less evangelical about a team, but to your point, more interested in that business side and those little nuances? I think it's very rare you find somebody who has that intuitive interest in the business of sport who isn't a fan, but it's important you find people who can disconnect the two. In fact, we, we often find that we will try and resource people on projects where the, the club or team or legal governing body isn't something they themselves are deeply passionate about because we do believe that area, that, that slight ability to step back is very effective. I'd like to think I was, I was half effective in the basketball space because I'm not really a fan of basketball, mm. had never played. And fundamentally, the task was about converting new people in. So for me to have a, a level of distance was really important and we try and reflect that a little bit as well. Certainly you find a lot more people who are fans of sports who don't have the intuitive interest yeah. than people who have intuitive interests that aren't, that aren't fans. And so uh, there are a whole myriad of areas on the, the what's changing in sports, the, you know, your point around the sort of Chinese advertising things that I, if we have time, I'd love to go into because I think there's some fascinating things there. I, I do want to bring us back to where we started before we talked about the graduates, which is actually founding the business. It'd be great to start right back at the beginning. And actually, I'm always really interested how co-founders meet each other, decide to work together, and then successfully take that step, because there's so many variables and things that could go wrong throughout that journey. How did you, I mean, start at the beginning, how did you meet Gareth and where did it go from there? So there were three of us who co-founded the business in the first instance. First of those, and our chief exec today is a, is a guy called Gareth Bolsh. Originally, I met Gareth when I offered him a role at Lane 4 mm. back in the day. So Adrian's business. And uh, quite rightly, given where he was at from a career perspective, 
having just retired actually from from being an international athlete, he turned me down. He did it in a very empathetic way, and we became friends and kept in touch. And and over the course probably of four years, just kept in touch, met up every so often. We lived quite local to each other, became friends. And um, Gareth had had joined Manchester City, and Gareth was always keen to set his own business up. He joined Manchester City, and the more we chatted over beers and coffees, although because he was an ex-athlete, he never had quite as many beers or quite enough coffees as I did, sort of came to the germ of an idea that some of the work he was doing at Manchester City might, which was was very much sort of understanding the data plumbing of a sports team and helping them consolidate down the data they held, might tally with with my experience, which was the other way around, really, which was going market in in terms of understanding market drivers, the way the industry is going, and mapping that through into how, a, in my instance, a basketball league or a, or a sports music channel might might operate. And so we came to the the idea really that there was a there was something in that, and that together we could put the outside in, inside out experience together, and, and set business up. And so we cooked up this this the idea of setting two circles up. At the time, though, I had a mortgage. I just had my second child, and had a very talented wife who um, was just about to go back. Uh, after her second maternity leave with our daughter Neve to go back into her world of, of venture capital, top end of venture capital. And so I was tasked with going home and having a chat to Claire and saying, Claire, I've met a man. And um, I got through that bit. I said, look, I think there's a there's a business here. And you know I've always wanted to do something, and I think this is probably it. And um, she was very good about it and listened. And over the course of a, of a couple of conversations, the last of which was when Claire and I were Euro camping with the kids in Austria and we were over Euro camping and I, and I had a call from Gareth saying there's, you know, there's another project actually with England World's Cricket Board who, and um, I think they're going to go with in terms of what our business can be to as a, as a bit of a wild card option. So at that point, we just put the kids to bed and we sort of got through one bottle of wine and I thought, okay, well, it's that moment where we need to probably cross the threshold saying, okay, Matt's going to do this and we're going to put the mortgage on hold and all that mm. kind of stuff. And and so we ended up saying, okay, well, Claire, well, I think this is the right time. I think we need to go for this. And they said, okay, well, on one condition, uh, okay. I wasn't sure it was going to be a lifetime of washing up, whether this was going to be more seriously, you know, doing it three days a week and having mm. a sensible paid job as well. So, well, the condition is that I'm coming too. Okay. So, um, so that was your third co-founder. Was our third co-founder. And to this day, our secret weapon, the basis of Claire had grown, invested in, or invested in, grown, and also sold a variety of businesses, including a couple in the, in the broader sort of entertainment space. And she was our finance director, now CFO from, from day one. And actually, we weren't sending many invoices at the time. So that didn't keep her as busy as, as her real informal brief, which was, look, you've, you've bought companies when they're sort of one and a half, two million pounds and fixed the things they should have fixed at the beginning. And in doing so, grown them to more sizable businesses. And so, you know, all those things that you fixed when you buy, bought those companies, just don't let us make those mistakes. They want So help us build foundations today that we'll need in 18 months' time as opposed to realizing too late and having to go back two steps in order to go forward. Um, so it was the three of us who set the business up and decamped to, uh, to our place. Uh, we tidied the kitchen for once, decamped to, to our place, sat down at our kitchen table and, and wrote the early stages of a business plan. 
on day one of the business when we got back from Monolith. And you would, you would all just full time. You had all gone straight full time into this. So Claire had come with you and gone full time into the. Yeah, so Cl- Claire didn't go back to do her her mat leave. I had a a notice period clearly at Lane Four, and actually did did a longer notice period. All sorts of great friends there, and sort of a lot of time, spend mm. time with with the guys there. So Gareth and Claire were actually strictly, I think they were our first two employees while I was, was going through that process. Yeah, as you, you will probably recount through the course of the interview, you know, we believe in uh, if you're going to do something, do it properly. And so mm. we got our heads down and got stuck in. The point you make around Claire's experience, it would be great to delve into that. I want to though just find out because this is something from other guests and from listeners who have, you know, I've spoken to her in a similar position, that journey is longer than sort of it sounds. And presumably there was some points where you were asking yourself before you went to Claire and said, you met a, met this man and the conversation that went with that. Presumably there were some, there are some questions or were some questions you asked yourself at the time being, like you say, you had two children, had your mortgage, had a, a good job with another firm. Do you remember any of those questions you did ask yourself when thinking about setting up two circles? And if so, what were they? There were there was probably only one, if I'm honest, with any real import, which is I'd heard that setting a business up was was horrendously tough in terms of hours and volume and stress and pressure and all those kind of things. And and so I kind of concluded and my lane four training, I guess, it taught me that that in order to put a shift in, you have to be more than extrinsically interested in what you're doing. So the question for me was, am I intrinsically interested in what I'm doing? Do I intrinsically believe in the value this business will bring to things I'm passionate about? Because if I do, then I'd like to think that when the going inevitably gets tough, I'll be able to fight through that. So there's absolutely no way I could have set a business up in something like pallet racking, (laughs) which... I can't personally connect myself to freight and logistics in the same way. And so I've every admiration for people who managed to pour their heart and soul into something like that, but, but that, that wasn't me. And so actually, I think the truth is there were probably relatively few areas where I could have led a business to, to the success we've had because of that. And fundamentally, I still feel when I get up in a Monday morning that it, that it's, it's not a tough place to be thinking about the job of this business, which is to connect more people to something in sport, I believe, intrinsically in, both in terms of its value for our society as a connecting force in some pretty challenging times, but also in the its value as, as getting kids' butts off the sofa and getting them physically active. And we have a role across both of those. A question that, and this might not have been one you asked, but it sort of occurred to me when you mentioned that you went into business with your wife yeah. and someone else. And now you take any social dynamic where there's three people, you have to work very hard to keep balance and not have it become two versus one. And, and that might not be at the top level, but on decisions, etc. You obviously, you know, you made the point, it was quite a shock for your wife when you said, I want to go and do this. Actually, what was, what was Gareth's reaction when you said, I do want to do this, but you're not just getting <laughs> me, you're getting you're getting both of us. And what was his reaction? Well, I think the, that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked that. I think the um, first thing to say is that Claire had sat in on and been an active contributor in two or three of the beer fueled brainstorms we'd had in mm. the months moving up. And so Gareth knew Claire 
and it was plainly obvious what experience she would bring to the jigsaw puzzle. And at the same time, you know, Gareth would say he's, as, as an elite athlete, you know, he didn't get anywhere without the benefit of being able to listen to good coaching, listen to good advice and good feedback mm. in order to push his own performance on. For what it's worth, we we made the call from minute one that the Rogans and the Borshes, if you like, as the, the two families involved, Gareth's wife, Laura, we were going to be 50-50. So the fact that Claire and I were spending more time on the business and Gareth was probably did more hours than either Claire or I mm. and had Laura keeping the family in check and him in check, by the way, was just the way that we individually decided to to split it. And I, I guess it comes down to just an implicit trust and we don't underestimate the extent to which we're very fortunate in that because you can only know so much in a lot of ways but it's a bigger mutual commitment than getting married yeah well and that was you know, that i think is what what got me very curious about it to your point is there's you can only know so much about someone before you work with them or work with them in the yeah. i guess what you'd call that sort of idea phase and when it's suddenly the only way you're making money and you're growing up is very different and it's great to hear it's worked worked out for you and i think that that point around approaching it as partners in families as opposed to the rogans having two-thirds yeah yeah yeah. i mean that would to be honest our relationship is such that might have relationship wise would have might have worked Mm. but it didn't reflect respective contributions so you know it's it's been it's been great in that regard and i think the other thing i perhaps add in is is that also comes down to the responsibility that Claire felt and acted on, I felt and acted mm. on that in a three-way meeting, we were perfectly capable of calling each other out. <laughs> how, yeah. did, how did you strike a balance between home life and, and work life in that respect? Because that must have been, if you're having a blazing, you know, a heated discussion about a business decision, is it, was it easy to then turn that off and go home and, or as you were, just see, say goodbye to Gareth and then cook dinner or... I don't think that happened very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess the reality is that, well, speaking from a personal perspective, I think having Claire so deeply involved in the business from day one, actually it made the stress and the pressure and the ability to turn off easier, not harder. Um, How come? Because if there was anything of, of import that had happened in the day that hadn't gone very well, you know, especially when you're that size, if there's anything of import that hasn't gone very well, the FD is going to know about it pretty quickly. And so by the time I got home commuting back out of London, if Claire was at home, she'd already know. So she'd known if I'd had a, one of those fortunate situations where it takes more than your body language for, mm. for her to know that you've had a, a pretty rough day and that you're more interested in how the kids are getting on and, and sort of the day outside of work. So Day to day, it made it much easier for us to switch off, I think. And it also enabled us, you know, if if she had something going on in life with kids or life outside, or I did, then we could sort of cover for each other a bit. Not easy, uh, particularly tough. Maybe come on to, to doing the the deal when we, we sold a, minor, a majority stake in, in the business. And, you know, that hits two people. It hits the chief exec and the FD hard. So that was a pretty lively six months. Yeah. But generally, I, I think, you know, we look back and think it's, you know, it wouldn't, I, I don't think, be, it would make the top five things we're proud of as a family to have navigated it through, and, and mm. but it wouldn't have been the defining thing for yeah. us as a couple and for the family. And I think it would be the last, last question of this, because I, 
I'm keen to, to your point around the deal. I think it'd be really good to understand the what we were talking about almost before we recorded around putting the right structures in place. And there'll be a whole host of things I know we can we can delve into there. I just it occurred to me, and I know we spoke that you you know, you know Don Morehouse, previous mm-hmm. guest on this show. And when I spoke to him, we went into quite a bit of detail around the structures around the family side because now he set up his business himself, as you know, but he's very open with the the strain it put on the family side and the conversations he had with his wife, friends, et cetera, beforehand. And the reason I ask this is because a number of people who I speak to are in a similar position to where you were, you know, whatever age, but with kids, young kids, mortgage. What structures or approaches did you and your wife have to put in place to to maintain the family life? Because there is a, a danger that if you're both in a business, it's all consuming. It's hard to keep the, the family side sort of as prominent. I guess there's a what structures do you put in around it for yourself and then what do you put in around for the family? Because, you know, fundamentally, if you're a grumpy, stressed, exhausted individual, you don't contribute to the family as well. So at a family level, Claire worked a very full part-time schedule, which meant we were very clear that always family would come first. Mm. So we never missed a sports day, either of us. I managed to fall over at one, but that's a different (laughs) story. We never missed a sports day. You know, we we made sure kids were picked up and, and neither of them through the whole process missed out on things they could have experienced in their formative years of growing up and mm. being in primary school. So that was commitment number one, I think. And what the, the impact of that was there were a lot more kind of light night working than mm. than if we hadn't been in that situation. But very clear that, that family came first. Not easy, but I'd like to think we managed it. Claire, in some ways, I think did a better job than I than I did of that. Um, at least in the in the first few years, because mm. yeah, I was six days and seventy hours a week. So I guess that's the first thing at a family level, an individual level. So I am one of those people who is both sports fan and intrinsically interested in the business of sport. And so I, I just made sure I had a personal sporting challenge to to give me something else to think about. So my goal through the early stages of the business was to qualify for Boston Marathon, which I eventually managed after a hailstorm in one race trying to qualify and, and a couple of injuries I got there in the end. Uh, and just having a something that made me go out in the first thing in the morning with a head torch on mm. in the pouring rain in the middle of Oxfordshire just to clear my head for three quarters of an hour was what gave me the endorphins and the balance and the sanity to come home. And in that 10 minutes, I was able to see the kids when they were up before I went to London just be present yeah. as opposed to just there. I wasn't perfect at it by any means, but that was the second thing, I think. So at a family level, being clear what your priority is, mm. even if that's tough to juggle and that's tough implications. At an individual level, just trying to be as ungrumpy as I possibly could be. And then probably also the third thing I'd chuck into that is just be exceptionally good as best you can be as time management. Mm. So just just destroying the notion of, of dead time. So... I'm an appalling driver. I like music too much. I like playing around with anything other than than the basics. It's not ideal when so, you're driving down no, the road. No, so it? unfortunately, Claire hates my driving. Claire will <laughs> tend to drive. So when we were going somewhere in the car as a family, the rule I had was that through the first six years of the business was that you know if if the journey was more than fifteen minutes, every single time, mm. whether it was during a theoretical holiday or not, I was on my laptop, just killing emails and just getting stuff done. Because 
if you have to do those number of hours, you just have to create as much dead time as possible. Um, oh, sorry, get rid of as much, as much dead time as possible. So I guess it's those three things, how we manage it, like an overarching principle, personally trying to stay away from being grumpy as best I could. And, and thirdly, just being remorseless in time management. Uh, really, really useful. Uh, and I think that middle point is so often forgotten. And actually, you phrase it as you know, trying to avoid being as grumpy or not being grumpy or be as, as little grumpy as possible. So that's an awful I can, way of saying I, I'm it. I'm perfectly capable um, of being miserable, sod. But I, the point around actually, and I think a lot of people sometimes forget it, even if you're not running a business, is make time, however small, for the things that make you happy, to your point, you know, the running, the goal, because that then lets you appreciate other things because you are in a better headspace. I think that's right. And I think, I think also in a business that's growing quickly, that role modeling back into the business as well mm. as your family is critical. So my phrase that got kind of hackneyed around when I was traveling with work and things was, you know, don't forget the head torch. I.e., you know, if, if you're in Scandinavia on a business trip, it's four o'clock in the morning and dark, you role model to your team the fact that you have taken time to get some distance. You know, I used to, I used to try and run occasionally at lunchtime and turn mm. up in my Leica or have my tennis kit on because I was going to a match afterwards and that. Mm. That it's not only having a personal challenge for your own sex, but it's role modeling the fact that that's okay. Yeah. In fact, we've been through a, we've been through a process. We grew by about 70 people joined the business last year. And what we found was one of the things that tipped us culturally over the edge or had a little risk tipped us over the edge last year was traditionally we had a set of principles that Gareth and I and our management team were role modeled that sort of through osmosis come into the company. Mm. So family always comes first. Work we be most productive for the company and clients on any one day, wherever that might be. We don't believe in face time. If you're not busy or you can do something else, you can go for it and just go do it. Little things like that that culturally were fundamental to us. Mm. We'd never written them down because we'd always just seen each other behave according to those. And when you grow by 50% in a year, or sorry, grow by 100% in a year and, and 70 people join the business, all of a sudden you have to codify some of that. So principles that I guess we tried to live internally in the way we lived our lives and tried to try to show the company just informally we started as we've grown to have to codify those a little bit just so everyone knows and create permissions mm. to try and create balance you know and one of the most fundamental one of those was family comes first and I think that brings us quite nicely on to the growth of the business and the point you highlighted around Claire came in for her experience in having done this in other businesses and you know I know when we sort of were talking before the interview one of the points you made is you shouldn't be when you're coming to a sale looking to tweak your business so it's sellable you should be building the solid foundations from the start so that your everything is in place it'd be great to you know like the point there around codifying culture get your view on what were the the core things that by setting up or building early put you in the best place for that rapid growth trajectory? Oh, so, so we, we run the whole business according to a balanced scorecard, very simple balanced scorecard. And we've done that since we set our plan in year one. And the things that felt hard to focus on, but I would absolutely put in the, stood us in brilliant stead for the long term, or in the internal current box, which we would christen process. So we had um, internal, external, current and future. Okay. Okay. So external future is all about your market and your proposition, not just today, but tomorrow. Your product development pipeline from our perspective. 
external current is all about your clients mm. and the quality of your delivery and quality of their feedback internal future that's what we christen team mm. so it's about your culture and the way you see your learning development strategy the way you're setting your team up and and, and to grow and thrive and move into different and larger roles over time and your internal current is your process mm. so what goes on in the heartbeat of the business uh, traditionally i think totally overlooked in consulting businesses that sets you up with a, a deep platform to scale and so for us the kind of things we were doing there were we we were probably running timesheets before we had client work to do just to understood not be busy fools and understood where we spent our time and so we this were, was when it was just the three of you or yeah i think timesheets was probably five or six people at the point which they arrived we were making sure that every every client had a contract, you know, a signed contract. We knew where that contract was. Mm. Um, of course, in the, the world of data, which we operate, that's particularly important, in particular data process agreements, things like that. We had plenty of clients who were gladly just have, have paid the bills and not signed a contract, but we insisted everyone did protect them as well as us. We had firm accounting policies for where we booked revenue. You know, we were never going to get into a position of cash accounting and booking the revenue when the work, when when the check came in. We we're going to book the revenue when we did the work, and that was based on the timesheet data that was coming in the other way. We were very clear around the stringency with which we looked at our suppliers. There are, you know, the marketing technology landscape has changed and evolved so quickly, and the quality, veracity, and often legality of the suppliers hasn't gone with it. So we were remorseless in the way in which we procured suppliers for our business and also made sure they were really strictly contracted and things. So things that, you know, occasionally we would look at ourselves and think, are we a bit above ourselves? Sort of, we've only got three people and, you know, and two young children as part of this business, you know. <laughs> uh, um, you know, are we, are we acting too much like we're Unilever and not a two-person business, three-person mm. business? But But the reality was that, those structures and foundations and job specs and proper recruitment processes and all those mm. kind of things were, you know, at various times when we've gone through 100% growth in a year, it's enabled us to keep pace. And in the early days, you know, when it was three of you and two kids, did that ever create challenges? And I think there's, there's two sides to this is actually internally when you're sitting around the table going, right, what are we going to do? We need to make some money, yeah. but actually someone at the table is saying, no, we need to define a recruitment process. You know, was it actually, how, how did you manage that tension between going out and, and earning money, create, winning a business, winning business and growing versus setting up those structures for the business you expected to be in a year, two years time? So, so that's where having three of us was so helpful. So we delineated the roles from day one as, as Gareth runs the clients, I run the business, Claire runs the numbers. And that simplicity of primary focus was critical because it meant we had somebody looking at, at I effectively, I did the, I did the team and market buckets as well as the overall ownership of the scorecard and the tensions therein. Claire ran the process bucket and Gareth ran the client's bucket. Mm -hmm. So we had somebody sort of looking at each of those buckets, taking ownership of them, and, and then ultimately managing the scorecard. So my primary role was just about managing the tensions within that. Two and a half years in, we made the decision that I was going to come out of doing client work entirely and focus on the business that was growing apace 
and put that next level of foundations in. And, and that was the best thing we ever did. It was quite a brave thing to do. And one of those formative moments where you only know you've got a strategy and a scorecard when you commit to it, because we could probably have made a couple of hundred grand's worth more of profit if I'd just done the client work. But that wasn't what we were there for. We were there to grow a business over 10 years we're desperately proud of. We weren't there to make 200 grand's more profit in year three. And to that point on the, the strategic side of it, you just highlighted you. it sounded like there was a 10-year sort of vision for, for mm-hmm. the business. How did that initial strategy conversation go? Because the, sort of what you highlighted around how Gareth found the first client felt it was, you know, he saw it, took a punt on it, and it that kick-started the business. Did you, or and if you did, at what point did you stop and do what I suspect was a conversation or an exercise around what do we see this business becoming? I guess we, we were both... Gareth and I naturally pulled into quite a future facing why would we why would we leave great job at Lane for cracking contract doing all sorts of interesting work at Manchester City to set a business up and I guess our general view was because we wanted to do something very special and challenge the way the sports marketing industry had limped along on the same modus operandi for 50 years since the inception of IMG with Mark McCormack and so you know, we, we were only really interested in the first instance around we want to change the game for sports marketing. We don't want to do something, or buy, build a business for two years, sell it, and then go to the Bahamas. We want to change mm. the game for sports marketing. And in order to change the game for sports marketing, that means that we know we're going to need different stages of that. We know it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and we also know that there's going to be highs and lows and ups and downs. So, we quite a bold vision that meant we were naturally sort of, I guess, both vested emotionally in, in the whole of that journey. So when it came round to the sort of the detail planning underneath this, underneath that, Claire was was really helpful in terms of helping us with the work back planning. Okay, so so we we also I mean Gareth's um, background is an elite athlete, mining strategy consultancy to some senses. Feel very well having a goal that you want to win a gold medal at the Olympics or mm. or, or or change the game of sports marketing, but you need to know what that means. You need to do this month, next month, next year, yes year. Mm. So day one of the business was the day we were kind of aligning on the vision, but also saying we actually built a balanced scorecard for the first three months and the first year in that first session. So how will we know we're on track for our 10-year goal in the first year? What what will we want to be seeing in the team space, in the market space? in the process space, in the client space, and, and ultimately in the numbers. And even in 12 months, felt an eternity away, right? So so we then worked it back even further and said, okay, well, where do we want to be in three months' time? And that was things like we need to have a certain level of pickup of the of our website. We need to have a certain number of people in the recruitment pipeline. We want to have had great client feedback from the initial work that we've done at, at the World's Cricket Board. We want our timesheet systems to be working. We want to understand some of the initial insight that's coming out of that. So goals in each of those four buckets helped us feel like we were on track. Critically, we knew what we were doing in the first three months somehow would get us closer to that big hairy goal at the top, which Mm. was disrupt the way the the industry operates. To sort of butcher a sports metaphor, you highlighted that if you want to win a gold medal, you you, that's your goal, but you need a plan behind Mm. it. And equally within that plan, you need people so you know a sportsman might have a trainer a physiotherapist nutritionist snc coach all of the above looking back for you what were or what do you tell people are the most important team members to have in your team and i will leave that as broad as you want to take it 
Well, well, if you if you take it to the early days, I think I'm a fairly good generalist, so mm-hmm. I know a little bit about quite a lot as opposed to knowing a lot about anything. And what I've found in my time at Lane Four in particular, which had grown to be about half the size it is now, so about grown to be about a 70, 80 person business while I was there. What I found was there were areas that required deep specialism. So in the, one of the other bold things we did in the first year was we paid for time from some experts in some certain spaces. So we used a law firm, three who, who still exist, who we rate highly, to, to build our initial client contract. It comes back to the point that we want our client contracts to be robust and firm and clear and accountability. They built our initial data processing agreement because back in the day, our clients didn't know that their to issue us with one. So we issued them with one to give back to us, which is a sign of how data has evolved. Um, so legal was one, HR was another. Mm. So employee contracts, making sure we had grievance procedures and all those kind of things and consulting on how we did our assessment centers. To, so we used a, a lady called Charlotte Hignett who worked with me at Lane 4 to do that. And we also were clear that uh, we wanted to make waves in the industry quickly, right? So you mm. want to change the game of sports marketing. You know, it's, that implies pace. And so we also worked with a guy, and I knew very well, a good friend of our business still. We continue to work with a guy called Nigel Curry, um, who helped drive a little bit of word of mouth in the industry. And you heard about the work these guys are doing and put us in touch with people who take a chance on us to keynote at the conferences, even though they'd never heard of our business. Just helping us understand how to land our message and critiquing our website because it was full of data gobbledygook. You know, things like that just gives a hard dose of reality in the market space. And, and those three, so legal, HR, and, and kind of trade market influence type stuff were, were the three things we invested in very early. And to this day, um, I mean, one of the many benefits of, of sitting in WPP like we do now is, is we continue in particular in the the legal and HR side, we can, as a business grows, it continues to need new and different things. And we're very lucky to be able to pull on specialist support mm. in that space. Um, the other thing that, that we lent heavily on was what we call the Oxfordshire office. So we live out in Oxfordshire and we were very lucky to find in the mums at school, right? So a little primary school, Aston Rowan primary where our kids go, we were very lucky to find a lady called Nicole Keane. And, and a couple of years later on, a lady called Zoe Jacobs, who very talented, had very senior corporate roles, mm. uh, and were now in a position where they wanted to get back to work, wanted to manage it around the kids. And we were we were very fortunate to be able to convince them to come on this very bandwagon with us as well. So there were several internal company meetings that started at the school gate. And I, I think that's the other third thing I would say. It links to getting time from Nigel and Charlotte and from our legal team and time from Nicole and Zoe as well, which was we were of the view that that we'd rather pay for real expertise in the early stages rather than fighting and scrapping to find a salary from somebody who was who was a relatively junior generalist mm. because that was the skill set I had. We wanted real expertise, we were really sharp. Nicole joined Claire in the finance team. Zoe tries her best to to keep our senior team out of trouble logistically, keep us in check and, and so that extended team within the team has been absolutely fundamental. How did that, I don't know if it's so easy having been in it or now looking back, maybe it is, but is how did that help you when the rapid growth came? So I think it gave us the comfort 
to know that when things were getting lively, our, our basics were under control. Mm. You know, so again, to, to probably too many sporting metaphors in this already, Please. but you know, as a, as a as an athlete, you do all sorts of core stability and strength and physical work, and a lot of that's just so in the last 100 meters of a 400 race, you can hold your form. You know, and your technique doesn't fall apart, and you don't start moving sideways in the lane, and you know you finish the race. And for us, it was a little bit like. So we, I remember one week before Christmas where we saw, we renewed four clients in three days and won two new clients. And each of them uh, were very keen that we get the projects contracted or at least contracts issued and start to get going mm. before Christmas so we could go on the beer of the bang in January with actually delivering the value, which effectively meant, you know, you've got Chris Rio in the back of the car playing that awful driving home Christmas song as you try and work out how you're going to get six contracts issued in two and a half hours before you arrive at the mother-in-law's. Yeah. And you can't do that unless you've got quality templates. Mm. You know exactly a lawyer's position on um, what a retained structure of this would look like, how we, we know exactly how we describe this kind of a project or that kind of a project. And I remember thinking as as driving down the drive, kids are saying we need a wee, sort of granny's coming out and say hello as i hit send on the sixth of the six contracts that needed to go out wow. that's why you have foundations yeah so that's our equivalent of driving into granny's house kind of our equivalent of of being in the last 50 yards of the race where you're kind of going is my course my course strong enough is my leg speed strong enough that i can hold my form mm. and that was a hold my form moment <laughs> yeah and we'll keep the metaphor going as much as i can i I like metaphors and I like that you like sports ones because it's the only ones I can do. Uh, <laughs> how did you have to adjust as you grew as a business? What were those key challenges? You know, to take your and to, to try and keep it in, in the metaphor, but you might have to park it. Yeah. As you step <laughs> up levels in sport, you very quickly realize that your, you know, your strength or your skill, which may have got you there, you, you may have been number one in the league you were in, actually doesn't cut it in the league if you've been the next league up when you've been promoted. You have to work on a whole different level of sort of skills. What for for you and Two Circles as a business were those challenges? And actually, how did you remain receptive to identifying them? So in the early days, that's where Claire came into her own mm. because, you know, we were very confident and happy with our processes as a half a million quid business in year one. But actually, she was great at keeping us uncomfortable and saying, well, by this time next year, we're going to, these are the challenges we're going to be having. And I think we were very good at kind of going, actually, we want, we knew what our projected revenue was the first three years. And we said, well, look, we want Claire to hold us to having the processes we're going to need for be a business in 18 months time. 18 months is our threshold. So if we envisage in 18 months time, we're going to be a two and a half million quid business revenue, then we want the processes of a two and a half million quid business today, even though we're only half a million pound today. And that's something that. I think just perme has permeated our culture ever since. So right now, for example, right now as a just eight-figure business, as Company's House would tell you, what, what we're noticing now is we're really interested by the, the, the phase of growth where you, you're, you're putting on people at an international level. Mm. And the point at which we have, so we have some people in North America, some people in Switzerland, we're really interested by that point at which you start to put operational support in the regions as opposed to our headquarters here in London. And, and the way in which we start to understand, okay, well, what would that be? Mm. You know, what if we envisage those, those markets are going to grow as quickly as they currently are? 
you know, what point would our would our footprint grow and how will that grow internationally? We're just trying to get out. We're lucky in W get in WPP, go and talk to other businesses in that situation who've been been through that. And actually that that kind of 130, 40 to 250 person business growth curve is, is actually quite hard mm. to find businesses who either remember what it was like back then, because Facebook won't remember. Yeah. Um, or or who are new enough to it that they'll can still remember the war stories that are relevant. Right. So they've been through that journey in a world where where data and digital was as it is today and the digital connectivity you can have with offices is as it is today. So we just have to stay curious. I'm a voracious talker to other businesses. Gareth is a reader. So we, you know, we learn in different ways, but, mm. but ultimately it's just getting out and listening. Uh, we certainly don't have all the answers for the next bit of the jigsaw. To your point around having spoken to other business owners and business leaders, are there any common challenges or problems that you have avoided through your approach? So things that other business leaders you keep hearing say, oh, our, our HR has taken loads of time because of our scale, whereas you're thinking we set it up to start correct to start with. I think probably the... The one thing that runs through the blood of this business, and I would say definitely not other agencies in the sports space, I'm, I'm perhaps not other agencies and consultancies in the advertising space, marketing mm. spaces, we are significantly less interested in new clients and particularly focused on existing clients and the quality of the work we do for existing clients uh, is is joint number one in priorities this business and always will be as long as Gareth and I are involved alongside mm. the care and attention and growth we give to our team. So what that means is we've built a product offer and a consultancy set that's focused around long-term client relationships mm. and client retention. And what that means is actually makes our business model a lot easier to manage and makes us a lot less likely to fall off the cliff in terms of revenue because we will take clients on and we're in the fortunate position to still be knocking back more new client work than taking it. We will only take that work on when we believe we can help a client for the long term and we believe they're vested in a long-term change and improvement that we're looking to deliver for them. So our business model effectively is have an internal team staff to deliver excellent work for our existing clients. And we know, given we were with 91% of clients we've ever worked with mm. still to this day, that the likelihood is that our, that our business model in that regard is, is pretty consistent. And so that focus in the way we spend our marketing budget and everything else, I think mitigates the biggest risk or challenge that we find other services businesses go through, which is, you know, it's a bit of a feast and famine. So yeah. you're, you sell a load of work, you're really focused on delivery and forget to sell new work to new clients so you then fall off a cliff everyone goes on the beach mm. and, and you kind of drain that your kind of retain profit for the first nine months of the year in the in the fallow period in the last three we've been really focused on saying no we want a consistent set of retain work with our consultancy clients for whom we deliver value and make it easy for them to continue to work with us in a way that makes economic sense for them and us and if we can pick up the right new client work along the way, then mm. we'll do that. So, for example, I think 92% of our marketing budget is spent on our existing clients. The picture you've painted is what I think all consultancy businesses would love, to yeah. your point. You know, the, the feast and famine and the, the ever-looming cliff are perennial challenges in the industry. 
How have you got your clients to the point or what is your approach for getting clients to that point where they want to build a long-term relationship and are happy to stay with you for the long term as opposed to the common challenge of consulting, get you in for a piece and regardless of whether they like you or not, not give you any follow-on work for maybe another six months, 12 months because of that's how their their business cycle is going. I think it's, um, well, that's a, that could be a long answer. So I'll try and try and sort of summarize it. The sports industry is changing for our eyes. In 2011, ESPN subscriptions started to decline for the first time. So that's the US, effectively the US Sky Sports, mm. US Sports Network started to decline in terms of subscriptions. And what's happened since is, is the broadcast line of any club or team's P&L has been disrupted. There's been money and skill sets and things come in to support the change to a completely different direct customer business model in a world where you watch more sport on your phone than you do on your television. What that means in turn is clients are desperate for help navigating that environment in a very dispassionate, quality-focused, self-liquidating way. So our focus on being both strategy consultancy, data analytics house, and digital marketing agency makes it very easy for us to say, this was the insight on the initial strategic piece of work we did for you. Within that, we ran some tests. And what we showed empirically was that this is a more effective road to go than why. And what we've then done is is help that change stick over six months. Mm. So you can see you spent X on us and our services and we've delivered over the first six months, we've delivered six X or whatever it might be, eight, 10. So it's the benefit of working with first party data makes it a lot easier for us than a leadership development business or organization development business to prove our empirical value. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But the second thing that comes with that, I think, is having confidence in ourselves to not create dependency on our clients. So as part of a lot of our engagements, we'll be developing the client's internal teams. And, And what that gives is a sense of clients not becoming dependent on us for the sake of an addiction, if you like. We solve a problem for them. We leave them with the skill sets and the tools, some of which might be technology, to continue to solve and, and the problems that we've helped them solve. And I guess that confidence in the value we bring has has meant that clients have been very likely to come to us with another challenge in the world where every one of their revenue lines, when broadcast gets disrupted, everything gets disrupted. The 9% of clients we've ever worked with who don't still work with us. Mm. We've never been booted out. (laughs) It's been more a situation where we've gotten to the point where that first piece of work has gotten sustainable and they're happy with that. And actually for us, if you come back to the intrinsic value of the business, which is putting more people on a tennis court day in and day out, connecting Mm. more people to sport we think they might love, whatever it might be, to, to stop an engagement after six months, clients be delighted, showing the empirical value that we've managed to do some of that. That that's not a disappointment. That's a good thing. I think a lot of the the industry side is very interesting, and I don't know if we're going to have to time today. But the like you say, that disruption and the the challenges they're facing, and to your point, just around focusing on the doing doing good work for your clients, showing the value. We will come on to if again, if time allows, that the. the marketing side and where b2b businesses go wrong because i know we, hmm. we had a good a, a sort of good chat on that I, well actually maybe why don't we i think we've probably fallen quite nicely into there why, why don't we just touch on that for a moment because i know prior to starting like this the interview sort of, i think you mentioned that 
most B2B organizations aren't particularly good at it, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, no, I mean, that that's, I think, a 99% of B2B marketing. And I say this from my time being guilty of, mm. of the similar thing, in particular in early stages of, of time at NBA and MTV. A lot of early B2B marketing is quite lazy. If I see another website that's blue with some fairly generic languages, Getty images, shots of people mm. in suits laughing at each other over a coffee, I think I'll scream. <laughs> you know, the, the reality is that the consulting industry in general has a tendency to spend 80% of its of its marketing budget on new client generation and 20% on looking after an existing client base, which is ironic when 80% of the revenue in any one year comes from an existing client base. And so I just think there's a mindset shift in a couple of areas with B2B marketing. Firstly, it's, it's recognizing that actually putting proper investment into an existing client base pays back. So for example, Lane four and, and now two circles run a brilliant client conference, which mm. is off the clock, time to spend time with your clients, providing interesting thought leading content that probably you haven't provided. You've mm. provided the platform and letting your existing clients talk to each other about how good you are or problems you've solved or areas you maybe could get better in. Mm. It's a very confident and useful way of, of continuing to drive just a proximity that, that your clients seeing you in every trade magazine trying to win new clients is not necessarily the best look in a way particular in an increasingly small digital world. So I, th I think it's a number one is it's sort of a refocusing of B2B marketing to recognize that it takes six or seven touch points for you to win a new piece of work. Mm. It's, it's a, you spend an awful lot of time trying to market, work out which ones have been more effective than others. And, and the most effective one by far is, having somebody else recommend and refer you mm. that comes out of giving chances for existing clients and potentially some potential clients to get together and spend time talking to each other that's far more effective than anything you can do yourself so that'd be the the one space the second thing that continues to amaze me in a world in which hierarchy is breaking down in every area of our society and that includes the way in which organizations run themselves even though consultancies are a little bit late to the table that continues to amaze me that an organization will only ever send out thought leadership if it's written by a partner or a senior manager. They'll only have fairly straight pictures of their managing partners on their website. There will be an inherent aversion to including any thought leadership or or, or just ideas from anyone who's not a fee earner in that mm. because if your finance director doesn't have smart ideas too. And ultimately, people by people. Mm. And it just surprises me constantly how much B2B marketing just presents a front as opposed to shows and represents and is proud of the people who are going to be doing the work for the client. And underneath that, I just think, if I'm honest, I, you know, we recruit all sorts of marketeers and we have far fewer impressive applications than B2B marketeers, far fewer mm -hmm. who will challenge the status quo and do things a little bit differently. What is it that, because those are some great things that people can do, what, what is it that's holding people back or in your, yeah, from the people you speak to, what, what is holding those partners in those firms back from actually doing that the fact it's the partners I mean, you, you just you know put your put your finger on it you know my experience of professional service firms is partners get promoted as a result of being transactionally transactionally brilliant at what they do mm. be a, a brilliant accountant be a brilliant lawyer be a brilliant strategy consultant why does that mean you'll be a brilliant marketer it doesn't 
means you might have a look around, look at what you perceive to be best practice, which you just said is poor in the B2B space. And all you'll do is replicate the best of poor stuff. You know, too many consultancies, including one I've worked in, have been obsessed by the fact that being a brilliant strategy consultant enables you to be a brilliant business manager. And often I think they're completely opposite. Business managers in, in service businesses should be prized for being brilliant at what they do and listen to as their area of expertise. I, and I've only ever seen one excellent marketeer, it's a managing partner of a strategy practice, a guy called Julian Viner at Calchess, just written a great book actually on business development in, in professional service firms. And, um, you know, he's a rare exception. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really interesting point. Like you say, that people get to where they are by doing what they've been good at and that doesn't necessarily make them great at what they need to take them forwards for sure strategy consultancies can be some of the worst run businesses leadership development businesses can be some of the worst at giving whole card impartial feedback to their peers it's just <laughs> it's one of those sort of perennial challenges yeah. if you look at some of the i believe i haven't anecdotally if you look at some of the internal contracts so for example between a law firm and their office provider mm. it's an absolute mess no, it's just it's sort of the Achilles heel, and and so we were desperate at avoiding that. Yeah. And so we said we're going to make as many decisions as we can in this business based on hard data. And it'll be the last question on the marketing piece, but that data piece, you you, you highlighted that you could show clients your. Yep. This is our, you know, we've A/B tested this. This is what it's bringing in, and in effect, that's your ROI on marketing. Well, it's more than it's more than A/B testing. So you can say, so for example you subscribe to a digital sports product, right? And you pay on a monthly basis and halfway through the year, maybe the season's finished and you don't renew. Okay. So we can, we don't just know there are X amount of lapsed people consuming that product. We know who they are mm. right? and we can demonstrate the number of people who've been lapsed, who we've put back into sort of some very, hopefully fairly sophisticated marketing and brought them back in to subscribe to the product we can predict the lapsing of somebody mm. before they lapse, sort of show empirically the ways in which lapsing was, was going to be the next bit, the jigsaw puzzle, we pull them back from that to engage them differently with the sport. So it's not just a case of saying we think we've driven 20% higher engagement. Mm. And, say, look, and the nature of engagement, your, your traditional lapse rate has been 25%. We've pulled that over the last two years down to 15%. The 10 people we've kept, we know their absolute spend since being kept is X. Mm. And we know the most likely way in which they will engage with the sport next is X and Y. So it's the difference is rather than saying X percent of people are going to behave like this, mm. X percent of people are going to behave like this and we know who they are and we can help them stay involved and engage with the sport. And sort of applying that, I guess, almost actually to your own marketing. Yeah. Because that was, to your to your point around the sort of the the generational and the structural element of consulting firms not allowing that is, yeah. is one side. And there's, from conversations I've had with, with partners and people in that position, there's also, a, would say, a healthy skepticism about the ROI of activities like the conference you mentioned. I mean, how, do you, how do you track your internal ROI for your marketing spend to make sure you are doing the best things for a consulting business? So the first thing to say is, is I believe that it is, depending on the industry, somewhere between five and seven touch points mm. for the new client. And that might be reading an article. That might be a chance conversation you have with a peer who recommends. Mm. That might be a, asking some other people on LinkedIn, look, I'm looking for somebody to help me with this. In a world where marketing attribution is tough, you can spend an awful lot of time and energy saying, 
okay, well, is that person 20% influenced by LinkedIn or 40% influenced by peer recommendation? And frankly, you can disappear up your own backside doing that modeling. So we don't do it. And that's partly as well, because like I said, you know, the new client acquisition for us is we hope is driven out of word of mouth and referral and doing a great job. And occasionally, you know, client will move from one place to another. So we don't spend too much time worrying about that. Mm. The, the biggest metric for us in terms of our new business pipeline is actually the quality of our existing work for clients. From an existing client perspective, something like our client conference, we will we will look at percentage of our certain of, of our revenue over a year, the last twelve months, over a year that's represented in the room of the conference. Because we know we've then touched uh, uh, normally it's above ninety. Mm. So we then touch significant amount of people in our say thank you for their work with us to encourage them to network with peers, get a sense of what we believe the future looks like. And that kind of stuff is gold dust for us. We'll look at the percentage of clients and the absolute clients who feedback on our people because we include them in our employee review process. So the metrics we use are about our existing clients as opposed to, and, and our marketing is really just a, an enabler to them getting time to spend it with each other and with us to understand more about where this mad disrupted industry is going than, than trying to work out whether somebody coming to a experiential workshop or reading an article is worth 20% of, mm. of their lifetime value or 10%. We just think because that's the new client stuff is less important for us. We don't worry too much mm. about that. But it's really interesting to hear the, the focus you put around the current clients and the, the metrics around that to ensure that you're, you're making sure everyone is still in that pipeline that funnel and actually the one thing i would say though is we provide products and services to to rights holder clients and we do that through a bright intelligent driven company and so that the acquisition metrics we do look at are absolutely in recruitment okay so where are we which courses are we noticing we're getting great applications from where from a a diversity perspective where are we underrate where are we underrated where are we finding we need to push hard in order to make sure we get a more diverse recruitment mix so we do look at acquisition data but actually that's more from a recruitment perspective than it is a as a kind of new client acquisition perspective there's a fascinating point in that in that the people who you've got if they have helped you get to where you are then the i guess the conclusion you're reaching is if we can get more people who follow those trends of the, you know, the courses or the, the organizations they've been from then potentially there could be a bringing more people in like that will be even better for us is what i'm y- yes although uh, the worlds of the worlds of data and sport don't necessarily lend you to be particularly data neutral uh, gender neutral mm. in the balance internally so i think we're about 70 percent male mm. at the moment we want to get that down quickly to, to drive a more balanced workforce. And so what we're finding is by doing things like split testing job profiles, if you use different language, we seem to get a better balance of female to male employees. Really? So for example, not looking to not looking to say these ten skills are mandatory to an application. Mm. Because frankly a guy um coming out of university is more likely to blag it in our experience. And this is what girls who yeah. got jobs with us would say. We think the the lads have been more likely to blag they've only got eight out of the ten and a female won't look at it for the level ten. Yeah. So we're trying to be really smart in terms of how we because the the ladies who join this business on balance move just as quickly, if not more quickly, mm. than the men who do. That is a really fascinating point 
to, you know, I've talked to, to about diversity to a number of people yeah. on this podcast and actually looking at it at that level, sort of at the, the micro instead of the, how do we have role models, which I'm sure you do, but how actually to the level of how do our job descriptions, because that's not, it's certainly not something I've ever heard or read in the press, but yeah. you're, you're spot on. You know, my, I think of all of my female friends and when we were at university and even since the, the amount of conversations to your exact point of most blokes will go, ah, I've, I've got that skill or I can pretend I do. <laughs> Whereas most, most of my female friends will spot what they don't have, not what they do have. Whereas yeah. to your point, most men will go, this is what I do have and that'll get it for me. So high performers in our business, we're a data business. It, so it's the kind of DNA of how we work or the currency with which we work. But we work with emotive content to drive customer change. And so the the most high potential people in our business are both right and left brain. And what I notice is that ladies who join our business who have the, the left brain are, are more likely to have the right as well. I interviewed um, another partner who runs another data consultancy, yeah. and funny, they said exactly the same thing, that you need both of those skills to, to to excel in the space. And I think the sort of slightly cliched perspective that someone who does data is a you know, quant who sits in their bedroom with all the windows shut and sort of curtains closed is is actually very wrong. And to your point, to excel, it's being able to take that data and apply the emotional intelligence to say, what does that mean and how do we use this effectively the uh the one liner we use at our client conference which sums it up is this year was stories are just data with a soul and that's true in the digital world in which we operate i I really like that and i think that conversation actually brings us quite nicely onto what you were you were talking about the wall behind you and and a point that i know we discussed previously which is you employ a lot of young people and I, I call myself a young person but I, I for, I'm, I'm constantly reminded that maybe I'm not as young as I thought I was and I think in in today's press and in the media you know that term millennials gets a, a huge amount of conversation and discussion and how are millennials different almost you know, some people refer to millennials like as a different species and you know, they've got four arms and three mm. legs actually as someone who has rapidly grown a workforce of people of that generation what have you found the similarities to any work generation and what for you have been the key differences or or challenges you've had to adapt to in managing that younger generation yeah good question um so i guess the first rule is not to call millennials <laughs> sort of like fight club is it yeah as a oh, stay clear of twitter when any one of our more vociferous employees gets called a millennial <laughs> um so it's, it's interesting really so i guess my I sort of talked earlier on about my career sort of story today. And I was, I guess I was marketing MBA to sort of in the late nineties to 15, 16 year olds, trying to get them to engage with basketball in a rainy Britain when we didn't have any indoor courts. And the reality was for chunks of that time in that era, there were more teenagers playing NBA live, the electronic arts game. than they were actually playing basketball. And then sort of moved to MTV, pre in between us era, but moved to MTV and all of a sudden they were 18, 19, 20, mostly on Ibiza and mostly listening to music that was computer generated. Uh, it was a lot of dance and house and things like that. And and then sort of as I moved to lane four, sort of working on organization, organizational improvement and organizational development, all of a sudden that was the next working population who are 21, 22. 
and I remember distinctly doing a session with a eminent magic circle law firm saying to them, look, you know, the reality is that the students who I've lived with this generation alongside this generation for the best part of eight or nine years, and, and they might be joining you now for the training, but a lot of them don't want to be partners. And that's an interesting dynamic for a, for a professional service firm that predicates it really traditional model for a law firm that's being you know slowly you can cope and in fact need a bunch of attrition mm. at every level in in order for your leverage model to work and in time to you know to be able to find the partners of tomorrow and so i guess it feels like all we've really done at, at two circles is just take some of what we've learned from the early from the early days of working with a you know a generation and, ju- and just try and map out okay so if we have a, I think our average age in the company is about 29. So if we have 27, 28, whatever it is, year old people in the organization now, or 21, or actually 51, if they come and have a certain mindset, you don't really believe it. I believe it's a lot more sophisticated than the year in which you were born. You know, what are the things that, that make a real difference? And I think what we notice, uh, because we're told, yeah. clue number one. So the first trick is listen, don't talk is that increasingly the whole workforce expects actually to be engaged in not just what they're doing with clients, but but how a company's doing and to be able to influence the future direction of travel. So every year we'll have a couple of team days exclusively focused on co-creating next year's strategy plan. And sure, we'll set some duration, but at the same time, it's it's more listening than, than talking. We do a lot of gathering feedback on the shape of the organization. We do a lot of gathering feedback on how people feel around the climate, but also whether we've got that balance of support and challenge right. So you mentioned the wall. So people yeah. listening to the podcast, behind me is a in this office is a wall, which is a word cloud that we built having asked people in our business, you know, what, what, why do you work here? What is it that makes you come to work today? And this is everyone in the business, not just our our kind of late 80s, early 90s friends. And I think the top three words were innovation, learning, challenge, and passion, I think. Yeah, I'd go with you there. And that's interesting because they're obviously the being biggest is a workout. They're the ones that were, and there's funds pretty big as well. I, I And that's a really good summary of what, not just people born in a certain generation, but I think people generally expect mm. from a working environment now. And, and actually you could argue that Ricky Gervais in the office sort of symptomized or symptomatic of the working world that people have moved away from and therefore over parody. We're very fortunate to work in a fun industry, but I'd like to hope people work at, at two circles because of those things. And we get the same if we were working in theater mm. or insurance or anything else, maybe slightly less, but and what I noticed is I mentioned support and challenge, right? Mm. And in particular, the most driven of our employees, getting that balance right is critical because we hire a lot of people. I mentioned the academics earlier on, and you succeeded a lot, right? And often we'll be the first ones to set challenges they won't succeed in mm. in the first instance. Just understanding how we get the right amount of challenge for an individual but provide the right support alongside that is is absolutely critical. And there'll be six-month periods where they'll need a lot of support and less challenge mm. and then they'll get restless and comfortable and we need to change that emphasis. How do you remain responsive to that? Because there's there's a few tensions that I'll 
I want to pick up in what you said, but that is one of them, is people who want to accelerate fast, but maybe haven't got the, the life experience or career experience to to go as rapidly as they want. So, so I was quite conditioned by MTV, which fundamentally didn't care about experience. Okay. So MTV is a very meritocratic culture where it believed if you're old, if you're good enough, you're old enough. Mm. So we're less interested in experience than aptitude, and the way in which we we make sure that people have their expectations calibrated is is formal reviews, including client reviews every six months, and we're very clear and hopefully very focused on giving high quality evidence based feedback. We also make sure that everybody has both line manager and mentor in their time here. So there won't be anyone in the business who doesn't understand where they are on our performance pathways. There won't be anyone who understands, doesn't know what they're needing to achieve in the next six months. Mm. We're trying to get better at helping them set 18-month goals and objectives as well so they understand it's not a marathon. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. And, I, and I think ultimately, if, if, you, if you put those things together, I've been talking about, you know, we're talking about listening, listening and ask questions rather than talk mm. talked about gathering feedback co-creation of strategy we talked about giving honest and true feedback you know i would argue that's actually every employee in every business in this country expects that now mm. because I, I look at my mum aged just under 70 um and the impact of data and digital has had on her and mm. you know, she'd expect to be able to give punchy, clear feedback to anyone she doesn't believe is is delivering what she expects as a mm. consumer experience and our employees and customers too. You know, and, you know, I, I don't really notice any difference in the importance of giving those things to somebody aged 28 as 48 in our business. And I think that talks to the how you develop that culture to enable people to give feedback. How do you as a leader then balance what I perceive, but please tell me if it isn't, as a tension of... You, given your position in the business, have a you know you have a purview of the entire organisation, and you know potentially strategic decisions you're making that you can't share with your team, or maybe just the team don't need to know about what that certain that level. How do you balance the potential tension where your team want to give you feedback or say, actually, Matt, we should be going in this direction. I think what you're talking about, you know, that direction there's nonsense. I'm sure they're not that frank. Maybe they are. Yeah. How do you then balance that and take on the feedback which you need to, but equally show or share with your team why and where their feedback hasn't been taken on? We've got quite a transactional example at the moment around our office space. So the lease on our space isn't being renewed, so we're looking for a new place to live. I've got 140 people here in London. And... We've been through a process of consultation and listening as to what people value in their work environment and what people don't value or what a regular company space might have, but our people for, for various reasons don't value and what we overrate. So good example, sporty people, pretty pricey getting around in London. We've got a lot of people who run to work or bike to work. Mm. Uh, which is great, but that means we are over-indexed on the need for showers and bypass, secure bypass. So we t- we're sort of taking that in as things our team want and need mm. in a new space. Effectively use that as our as our wish list, if you like, when we're when we're trying to find somewhere to live. But we'll also be 
quite clear in coming back when we announce where we are going. We say, look, these are the things we managed to get. These are the things we didn't manage to get. We could have got these things, and that would have cost us the best part of 200 grand a year, bottom line. Mm. Now, that equates to an X percent on average pay rise across the business. That equates to no away days and team days over the course of the year. And I think that what I've learned over time is that the job as a leader is is not to justify strategy, it's just to help people understand the active choices you made, okay? Because the reality is we'd have loved an office with everything and everything and pineapple trees and hammocks and all the other things that have been on the list. But the reality is that would have come at a cost of something else. And the yeah. best thing you can do with anyone in your business is help teach them to be a leader next time around the block. And that involves help them understand that it's an ambiguous world of making tough choices, but help explain the rationale behind the choices you made. And I, I really like how you how you frame the decisions as well. I think so often, and this is sort of informal on the grapevine, you hear people who their company have made a decision and that decision has been made, you know, be it, they don't get that rationale or it's been made because we as a company need to make more profit. Whereas I think to your point there, framing it in what would the employees lose that trade-off you know we could have our our hammocks and our palm trees and what was the craziest thing someone asked for was that was that it or was there um so right now we're on two floors and we have had somebody half seriously look at planning permission for a little um slide that went between two floors <laughs> unfortunately that was our chief exec <laughs> gareth and claire as cfo told him to sod off um <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's probably the silliest. Yeah. No, no, I, oh, purely because it means you'll only go from the third floor to the second. How you get from the second to the third? You still got to walk upstairs. I'm sure Gareth argues it's much. You know, you're, you're saving 25 percent of your overall movement time if it's twice as efficient going down the the ladder. Oh, sorry, down the slide. But yeah, that to which Claire that's... responded, "And 800 meters for Britain, he's quick enough. Could be right." <laughs> I feel this is a discussion that's played out, but it's happened. But I think that point entirely around, and you know, that is really insightful of treat i think it comes down to just treat adults like adults and almost to your point is so often and in sort of years gone by almost people weren't treated like adults you know i've had one of my previous guests jeff wellstead talks a lot about employee experience you know he he makes the point around a lot of policies are, are quite restrictive and you actually if you looked at them now you wouldn't you wouldn't have them but if you trust adults to be adults they will do what you have empowered them and trusted them to do I can't remember who said it, but it's it's amazing. The quote was something along the lines: "It's amazing how clever people become when you when you empower them and give them yeah. responsibility." As long as you set your red lines, I mean, there'll be, I mean, four or five things in nearly seven years that we need to go. No, we only need to say it once. As long as you set your red lines every so often. And is that? I just want to ensure I understand that point. Is that you are clear with the organisation at the start where those red lines are? No, we that... pick, I've picked something. So you said that actually, went no, beyond. that's too far. Yeah. It's not because you've crossed regulation 4.7B. Yeah. Because we don't believe, I don't believe, I'll own it, I don't believe that's the right way to behave mm. in the environment you're in or that's not something we can allow in the context of data security, leaving a door open, something like that. You know, mm. just, just little things. Not in a way that, you know, it festers. It's just a quick and sharp. That's all you need. Yeah. Once people know and yeah. they understand yeah. it, you know, become once, self-policing. Matt, we we've covered a whole whole load of ground today, and I, I'm I'm really interested in your answer to this because I think we've we've touched on some a whole range of topics, and that is 
books. So th- this is a question I ask all of my guests, and maybe you you sort of alluded to it earlier in that you like to speak to other companies, and maybe Gareth is the one who gets things from books. So if books isn't your bag, no, that's you know tell me. But be really interested what book or books you find yourself recommending or giving to to your team here or to to others starting a business most often. So I guess there's this combination of books I recommend for what we do and then how we do it. And the what we do, I I think I'd probably go for a book called Players by Matthew Futterman. So mm-hmm. documents the evolution of the sports industry over the course of the last, I guess, 70 years since, since Mark McCormack started IMG in the early 60s and points to why now is a is a, I hate the word, but like a pivot point for the industry and, and why mm. things have changed so quickly. And it sets the context beautifully for the world in which employees of two circles are going to inhabit and hopefully help change. In terms of the how we do it, one of the reasons I was really keen to do the podcast was I think there's a real dearth of smart writing and thinking around how to run and lead a professional services business. Um, big admirer of other stuff that Don Melhouse does as well as the podcast and found myself watching a, a, a lot of YouTube clips of a guy who's now retired actually a guy called David Maester mm. who wrote what I believe is a fairly seminal book on called Managing Professional Services Firms he was a, a partner in a law firm but one of the partners who could manage their way out of a paper bag and just really eloquently describes things like the leverage model in a professional service business and how more revenue isn't necessarily a good thing mm. and just sort of a world where you know it's about driving smart margins and great client return and the balance around that which fundamentally is is what we believe it, it's dated slightly on the basis that as i was mentioning earlier on you know the world of law firms is having to change and be mm. disrupted and things as well and, and david wrote it I think, a good 25 years ago but that's well worth a well worth a skim brilliant great recommendations and yes the uh the David Meister book was also a recommendation from Dom. Yeah. And I, I, I think you're right. It's, it's one of the reasons I set up this podcast. I think for an industry that talks to a lot of people, it's very bad at talking to itself and sharing, sharing advice, sharing insights. And I, for sure. I, I guess to your, you know, for, it comes back to around things the other industries do a lot better is consulting still seems to covet knowledge. And I feel most other industries have moved to a world where knowledge comes largely free, but execution is what counts. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do with this. So it's so ironic, really, isn't it? Because consultancies go into a client and ultimately share the benefit of their learning from working in a lot of different environments. Mm. And yeah, consultancies themselves are very lazy about going out of their own environment. Or physician heal herself. Exactly. And then last question for, for today's conversation. And I'll be interested. Take this as you want, really. Um, you, you have three people in front of you, and the question is to give one piece of advice to each, and that is someone just starting their career. So that could be one of your graduates um, coming in just after university, one who's four to five years in, and now I, in sort of a consulting grade parlance, I'd call that consultant to manager, but sort of the, you know the yep. early to mid stage, and then one who is approaching partner or someone who is in the position you were of wanting to step out and run their own business what one piece of advice would you give to each okay so at a starting out stage i think it would be a phrase that a mate of mine 
coined, I believe, which is a guy called Greg Searle, who also worked with that lane for age 38, decided to go back and try and win his second Olympic gold medal, having been a five-a-side playing dad for the best part of 10 years since winning his first one. He said that when he went back, the temptation was just to row really quick, try and get as fit as the as the young whippersnappers immediately. But he realized that unless he focused and honed in on technique and things, when times get tough, mm. he'd fall apart because he was a lot older. So he coined the phrase, go slow, go fast. And I find myself talking to our newer hires a lot in that regard. Mm. So actually, whether you get promoted, inverted commas, six months ahead of your peer group, six months behind, or about on track is completely irrelevant. What's more important is that you're filling in the gaps in your knowledge and experience based on your degree and and Mm. bits you still have to fill, and that you start to get a sense of what you want your 18 months to five years trajectory to look like and understand where your sweet spots are going to be. So, for example, I was told very early on in my career by a guy called Steve Hacking, who runs Cardland Training now, that I was a so-so analyst, but I'd be a bloody good partner. I just needed to get there. <laughs> he was right. You know, my QC was slightly dicey. And I think it's just, it's not one of those industries consulting where mm. the rock stars a year and a half in and necessarily going to be the best, mm. highest potential in the long term. So that's starting out four or five years in. I think I'd say, are you going to be a consulting lifer? And if you're going to be a consulting lifer, great and good. If you don't see yourself being a, a consulting lifer, in order to stay in consulting, you have to be getting experience where you and not somebody three steps out of the food chain are succeeding and failing and learning from it and getting hard experience as an operator as well as a consultant. That might be leading project teams. That might be doing a secondment for six months. That just getting yourself a little bit of, of hard experience because what we notice are when we look at people five, six years in who've purely been in consulting, Actually, they can't do. They can think, but they can't do. And that's quite a tough skill to pick up if you live your life in PowerPoint. And then at the approaching partner stage, I think I'd say it's that point really on you you will have been promoted, I imagine, as a result of being transactionally brilliant. And maybe you've helped out a recruitment or maybe you've taken an overview of an industry practice or something. But again, you won't necessarily, if you've come up through that environment, you won't necessarily have done so what kind of a partner do you aspire to be? Are you going to be the ultimate rainmaker? Are you going to be an operator who manages the P&L and profit share amongst the partners? What, what's your functional purpose going to be? Mm. And how do you fill in the gaps before you get there? Fantastic. And I think it's a theme throughout this conversation and your point there around go slow to go fast, whether it's the start of your career or growing your own business. It's seems to set the foundation for success apart from my running which is sadly still slow <laughs> <laughs> still you haven't got quite to the fast bit yet then no i'll get there <laughs> well matt this has been really a great conversation thank you for giving me your time i know you're busy and you, you're only in london for a couple of days a week so very precious time while you're here last thing to really ask is for anyone who's heard this interview wants to find out more about yourself or two circles where would you point them to where can they get in touch so from a Two Circles perspective, the website uh, is actually soon to change, but you can find us at insidetwocircles.com, T-W-O, circles.com. Mm-hmm. My address is just matt.rogan at insidetwocircles.com. An email perspective, Twitter's Matt Rogan Sport, and I can't handle anything other than that. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. You're welcome to get in touch <laughs> on LinkedIn, but 
the Instagrams and co of this world is just with two young kids is one platform too many. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I will put all of those in the show notes cool. to save people having to listen back and write it down. So Matt, thank you so much for this and all the best for the rest of your week. No worries. Thanks for your time doing it. It's much needed. Cheers, Matt. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.